I am going to talk in a minute about Romans 8, 15 and 16. If you want to turn to Romans 8, you can. We'll read verses 12 through 17, but I'm going to focus on verses 15 and 16 of Romans 8. But before I do, I want to talk about one thing and then answer a quick question that uh, will help us know me a little bit better. The first thing, just to get out of the way, is you do probably sometimes see me wearing a mask around. Somebody in my family's got an underlying condition. It's just part of the deal we're in. So hope to figure it out, hope to get it over with. But in the meantime, we wear one as a minor precaution. So I just wanted to put that out there and let everybody know. Sometimes, you know, you got to wear one for short term, sometimes long term, whatever. But for us, that's just the moment we're in. So we just wanted to let that be known. And I don't mean to make a distraction out of it, but just thought I'd acknowledge it since I'm not just always out there. And you might wonder what's going on. And it's just a precaution for us as a family. And that's, that's it. Now, in other more important news, my mom and my dad and Greg back here helped you get to know me a little better because you're probably wondering who is this guy that's now filling in. That's me. I'm probably 13 or 14. I'm in the garage at my parents' house. I grew up in a really small town, Friendsville, Tennessee. It had 800 people when that was taken, which was about 1993, 1994. It's got 900 now, so things are, things are going, things are growing, things are growing rapidly. And so my dad loves to restore antique cars and trucks, and he and I were doing a truck at this time. He was doing most of the work, but I was there with my cutoff jeans, and we were working together. Greg has another picture that's got my dad in it. The engine is a little farther along in this picture, so that's my dad and I without the cutoff jeans. And I just put these up there because I feel like you should know the levels of embarrassment that I'm capable of working my way through in life. And, you know, just a little bit of my backstory. There was a time when I looked like that. I have a, probably have a better haircut now, but the rest is, you know, we'll see. So um, I, well, I'm trying to think, you know, when that picture was taken, I'd been a Christian about a year and went to a church in Friendsville. My parents moved there because my dad got a better job. I go to a church. My parents were generally like sort of relaxed, like you might go have a positive experience, but they didn't want to pressure me. So I go to church. Lo and behold, I meet Christ and come to understand that he died for my sins. But not a lot happened after that picture was taken in that kind of early phase there. The kids I went to middle school with were the, some of the same kids who went to church. And I don't know how many of you have been through middle school before. I don't know how many of you are willing to think back to that chapter of your life. But I didn't have the easiest, most social, fun, friendly kind of middle school experience. So since some of those people at school that I didn't really have a great time with were some of the same people at church, it kind of mixed my worlds and didn't help me grow spiritually. But when I was 16, a popular, fun, cool guy at my high school named Daniel he came to my house and was just hanging out with me. And I didn't feel popular or fun, and I wasn't going to church regularly. I wasn't following Jesus. I didn't really have any kind of spiritual growth going on in my life. But Daniel comes over, and he says, we're hanging out, we're having fun. And then a few hours go by, and he says, what are you doing later? And he says, I said, nothing. And he said, uh, well, come, to, come with me. Let's go hang out at church tonight. So I go to church with him. And for the first time in my life, all the things that sort of are messages about Christianity started to make sense to me. And I found myself at a church where sermons started to make sense to me. I actually cared what was being said. Prayers started to make sense to me. I realized, like, oh, I'm talking to God right now, and I actually get the sense that he's listening. And the Bible made sense when I read it, and spiritual gifts made sense, and forgiveness made sense. And, well, I don't want to say it made sense, right? But I started to get my head around, like, these big ideas. 
And I was around people who really seemed to be connecting with Jesus and following him, and it was part of their life. So all this kind of started happening for me. It was a church, nothing like this. It was red brick walls. It had white columns outside, southerners inside shouting. By the way, if you can't tell, you know, I definitely still got my southern accent, but it's not as strong as it was when that picture was taken. So it's changed some. Uh, Finished high school. Just real quickly, went to the University of Tennessee for journalism. I was really fortunate. That was my my college degree. And I did that for about 10 years. During that stretch, I got a job in Baltimore working for the Associated Press. So I moved to Baltimore sight unseen, did a phone interview, and just moved to Baltimore sight unseen in my early 20s, working at the Associated Press in a big city, which is the polar opposite, of course, like 800 people, Baltimore, Maryland. Those are, you know, pretty different places. And what happened, one of the weird, I mean, many things happened, but just quickly, the interesting part is people in Tennessee had said a few times to me, you're going to be in ministry. You're going to be in ministry. You just don't know it yet. I was 17. I mean, I didn't know anything yet. So it was easy for me to accept as ludicrous as they sounded. And I just moved on and thought, whatever, go to college, go to journalism, find myself in Baltimore. People I'm going to church with start saying to me, would you preach here on this service to the young adults? Or would you preach to the high school students? Or we think you're called to ministry. And I'm going, how do people in Baltimore get this idea? Because they don't know the people in Tennessee. And they're nothing like the people in Tennessee. So like, it's not just like some sort of agreed upon idea, like something. And what you know, of course, is what I didn't know, which is that God is bigger than geography. God's bigger than culture, and God's bigger than identity, and God's bigger than personality, and he's bigger than our spiritual maturity, and he's bigger than what we can grasp at any moment. He knew what was going on, and so these guys in my life, like George Antonakis and George Hopkins and Corey Smith down in Baltimore, start investing in me and explaining, like, hey, this is what that call means. This is what you're supposed to do, and then I find out, like, oh, there's schools where you go to this, so then they help me figure out a school, so I go to school in Portland, Oregon, a place called Western Seminary, Took several years to get through that. Hallie and I got married during that time. We ended up moving out to Portland, Oregon for a few years, which was fun and good. A lot of struggles, a lot of challenges. But like the song says, right, through many dangers, toils, and snares, we have already come, you know? And that feels like enough for now. You've already seen me in cutoff jeans. So overalls, it's probably enough. We'll just leave it there. But you can ask me questions. Greg and I will work together. I have a local phone number. We'll get that put up on the slide next week. And so you can get my number. You can come up to me too at the end of church and, you know, ask for it. But anyway, it's a good thing Jesus is the chief shepherd. But you get to see me. You get to know me a little bit. And now you get to hear from the Lord. I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. Then I'll pray. We'll continue hearing from the Lord and worshiping. Romans 8, verse 12 says, So then, brethren... We are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. And here's verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. But you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Let's connect with our Abba, Father, for a moment in prayer. 
Father, we can cry out to you. And we can also thank you that we are children of God through the gospel, through the faith of Jesus Christ and his obedience and the faith that we now put in him. You are our anchor to the ground. You are the one we can trust in and count on. And we thank you and we praise you so much. We know that we may suffer with you, but we will be glorified with you. And the spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children and we're heirs. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We've received a spirit of adoption and we're free from fear. We're free from sin. We've been set free. We've been delivered. We've been raised to walk in newness of life. And we thank you and we praise you for that. Please help us this morning to learn what we need to apply, to understand what might not make sense to us, to grow in faith, to leave here closer to you and more like you, conformed, sanctified, encouraged, and clear on how to be faithful and loving and obedient children. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I want to begin with the, the main idea there in verse 15. You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. What, what is this spirit of slavery, that this fear that's being talked about? Well, if you think through the whole Bible, the spirit gets really clear with the sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and his brother Abel. It's a very common story, but just to briefly mention these two brothers, they know about God. They know enough to know we should be bringing sacrifices to him. We should be worshiping him. And somewhere they got that information. Somehow they figured that out. They had some experience where they come together as a family, worship the Lord. And part of that was giving offerings. At one of those offerings, at some point, the Lord said to the two brothers, I'm pleased with what Abel did. I'm not pleased with what Cain did. And right when God delivers that, something is on the verge of exploding within that family that's so destructive. And so God says to Cain, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. God is saying to Cain, there's this malevolent, destructive reality. This voracious, vicious force is ready to pounce upon you. That's the idea. It's crouching. It's this massive, dangerous force right next to you. It wants to overpower and control you, Cain. And God says, you must master it to Cain. But Cain doesn't master it. And he destroys his brother's life in the process, and he unleashes horrific havoc through his choice. It's graphic, but it's quite clear. And I go there because there's this fear that Cain ought to have taken seriously, and he doesn't. And Romans 8 makes it plain that the identity of human beings is either free or a slave to a spirit which leads to fear again. And God is giving us always a way out, but in the biblical worldview, the way people would have heard this, the spirit within a person would have controlled a person. That's why Paul's making such a big deal about what spirit you've received. The spirit of a man or the spirit of a woman controls the course of their life. In the book of Ephesians, Paul tells the believers at that church, do not be drunk on wine, but be filled with the spirit. It's this idea that, you know, your life is either, you, you, if you get drunk on wine, it's affecting all the ways that you live, how you walk, how you talk, how you dance, whatever, it's affecting you. Paul's saying the same thing, be filled with the Spirit. He's saying it's not a choice as much as it is a reality that you act based on what controls you. And I'm saying this morning, don't receive anything that doesn't lead you to Abba, Father, that's why Paul writes it this way. Any spirit other than a spirit that would cause you to cry out to God 
is either slavery or will lead to slavery again. Romans 8 doesn't leave us with another choice. Sometimes in life there's other choices. There's a third way or a fourth way or a fifth way. You could do some things differently. But in this case, the Bible's clear. Not just Paul, but Deuteronomy 30, God says to the Hebrews, choose life or choose death. Look at the Garden of Eden right then, right? With Adam and Eve way before Cain and Abel's moment. God says, listen to me. Don't listen to the serpent. There's only two choices. And Satan, just to be clear, wants you to think like a slave. He wants you to respond like you're not loved, you're not cared for, you're not privileged, you're not honored. Right after Adam sinned in Genesis 3, what does he do? He says, I was afraid, so I hid. He tells God, I was afraid. Here's this fear all the way back there. And I mentioned this, not just to beat up people from thousands of years ago, but fear is so natural. It comes up in Genesis 3, and that's why it comes up in Romans 8. Fear is so natural to us, and we can just own that. Fear is normal. That's what Adam said in Genesis 3, and he had believed the lie of Satan, and it created this fear. And Adam says, I was afraid. I was afraid, so I hid. The family of God, the very family of God has become a place of fear. At that moment, trust and love and safety and connection, like Adam walking with God in the cool of the day, like the Bible says, that's gone. That's shrunk down into hiding from the God who created the very things that Adam's hiding behind, whatever trees it was or hole in the ground or whatever he found. God made it. Like, how are you going to hide from him? And this sounds kind of intimidating. And if we stop right now, it feels like, well, it's, it's a lot easier to have fear than it is to have faith. It's easier to just act passively, to do nothing, or to be reactive. Just, just do something. Just do nothing, right? It's, it's hard. It feels heavy. I understand wanting to be impulsive and active and all of that. I'm up here talking about prayer, but that doesn't mean that I'm great at doing it. Here's the good news, but here's the missing piece that can slowly help you and I shift from fear into a place of faith. The life that you have, Romans 8 says, is defined more by what you've received than by what you've achieved. In the kingdom of God, more is given than is earned. God said, this is God himself, Jesus talking. He says, it's better to give than to receive. And he's practicing what he's preaching. Fearless intimacy with God is yours because he's given the spirit who works in you so that you say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. The chief shepherd is leading you into fearless intimacy with God. Many, 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 many years after Adam's own fearful moment, the Holy Spirit's working, Christ is working, so that you can say, Abba, Father, to lead you back into the family of God. And Romans 8, chap <clears throat> excuse me, Romans 8, 1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no fear. There's no condemnation. There's no reason to hide because there's nothing to be afraid of. At a moment like this, in our church, I could see where some of us are scared to do anything. There'd be a, an inclination to go, let's not do anything wrong. Let's just, let's just, let's just, we're just a little scared, so let's just not do anything because we don't want to get it wrong. And I imagine there could be people at the other end who would say, let's do something. Let's do anything. Don't, you know, and there's almost this fear. If we don't do something, it's going to go, it's going to go wrong. And most churches in between pastors experience at least three common influences on their life. And that can make moving forward, obeying the Lord, trusting the Lord a little tough. Those three things just quickly are anxiety or fear. 
Number two, unresolved wounds or challenges, something that just hasn't quite worked out. And number three, won't surprise you, it's complaining. You'll remember that when the Hebrews left Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, they get to a point where they start saying, it was so much better back then, right? They're complaining, they're grumbling, they're murmuring. It's also a normal human moment. But whatever's coming up for us, Romans 8 gives us a better alternative, which is to say, Abba, Father. Doesn't mean that the feelings have to go away. There's no shame around feelings. There's not even shame, I'm saying, about an instinct to be thinking backward or thinking forward or remember some painful situation. It's just that in those moments, we can say, Abba, Father, instead of hiding like Adam or attacking somebody else like Cain. The word of Christ to us for all the moments, wherever, whatever they are, wherever we are, is to say, Abba, Father. And you can say, Abba, Father, I'm scared. Abba, Father, I'm anxious. Abba, Father, we should restart this. We should be doing this. Abba, Father, I hope we do that thing. Abba, Father, I can't believe they're so slow. Abba, Father, I can't believe it's going so fast. Abba, Father, fearless intimacy with God is yours. I once heard a saying, don't just do something, sit there. And that was good for me because I'm on the side that wants to think sometimes like, okay, let's just do something. Let's just do something. Reactivity, impulsivity, just sort of, sort of I can go that route. And it was really helpful. Don't just do something. Sit there. I'm going to add to that a little bit. I, I don't mean to change that saying because it's good enough on its own, and I certainly wouldn't add to Scripture, but I think Paul is saying, in a sense, if he, if he might be talking to us, not exactly what scripture says, but if you were speaking to us one-on-one, -on -one, Paul might just say, don't just do something, cry out to Abba Father. Don't just be afraid and hide, cry out to Abba Father. Don't just be angry at the timing, don't just be scared about the timing, Abba Father. Don't just act, say Abba Father. Now be observant of fear. I'm all for awareness of emotions, and I'm not the best at that either. Being a journalist, you get kind of trained to leave your emotions out of it, try to communicate the facts, try to tell the truth. But I'm all for awareness of emotions. Feelings are messengers. They're part of our life. There's something about it. And I, I wouldn't want to be quoted on this, but I think that Jesus said something like, do not be afraid, do not fear, fear not, these type of phrases 365 times. I've heard that before, not exactly sure, because I wasn't a math major, so I don't go around counting up these sort of things, but I think it's in there hundreds of times, we'll say. And that's a common human experience, and God knows it, and so he keeps saying, don't fear. And Jesus doesn't reject people or condemn people. Instead, he welcomes them to himself. He says, I want to hear your fears. Talk to me about what's going on. Tell me what you're feeling. Whether it's fear about your spiritual future or the circumstances of your life, Philippians 4 says, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's no need to hide things in the kingdom. There's no need to hurry them. Fearless intimacy with God is yours. Romans 8.15 says, All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And by the way, this isn't about men or women or boys and girls. The word son is referring to an ancient concept of privilege and intimacy. The son in the Roman world would have had a privilege and an intimacy that was special and significant. It meant, Paul is saying, to, have, to be a son of God is to have more honor, more privilege, more intimacy with the Father. And the Bible makes clear in other places, and Paul does as well, that anyone who trusts in Christ is received into the family, 
without levels of reward or privilege or intimacy. Everyone is there. And so Paul is saying all who are led by the Spirit of God are privileged, honored, beloved children of God. The Spirit of God leads everyone, anyone, everyone who's believed, everyone who's believed in Christ into a privileged life of fearless intimacy. Who here wants to guess what my kids say somewhere between 281 and 377 times a day? Right there. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and there's, there's plenty of whys. There's plenty of whys. That's the second question. But the first one is always daddy. It's always daddy. Daddy, come see this diamondback terrapin I drew. Which is, these are real quotes. Daddy, what's for lunch? Daddy, I want a Band-Aid. Daddy, what's the maximum length of a striped bass? I also got that question this week. (laughs) Daddy, can I have more oatmeal? Daddy, how many eggs does a purple finch lay? I mean, like, you you know, I don't know what dads did before iPhones, but it's like, you know, it's like, (sighs) maximum length. Yeah, not as much. Exactly. I've started trying to say like pre-iPhone life. I've just started saying, I don't know. I don't know. The answer is not possible. Go to the library. You know, so they don't, my kids don't ask these questions because I know the answers. They ask these, they don't, they don't, honestly, they don't even ask these questions because I'm like patient and loving and like, I'm so glad you want to know about diamondback terrapins. Yeah, let's do that. That's exactly what I was thinking about on a Tuesday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's bedtime, and you want to talk about the maximum length of a striped bass? Me too. Yes, exactly. They ask these questions because of who they are and because of who I am. That's why they're asking these questions. It's not about my knowledge. It's not about my competency. It's not about my character. What do we do when we have our own moments? When you find out that your interim pastor used to wear overalls and cut off jeans Abba Father probably like Abba Father but however you put it Abba Father what do we do when our money's a little tight Abba Father when we have health concerns or bad situations at work or other stuff we don't like families getting difficult Abba Father Abba Father that leads me to another question kind of see why I became a journalist maybe is I was wondering, why does the Bible say Abba, Father? Because both of those are words about a father. Now, one word, Abba, would have been something the Jewish people would have said more. They would have said Abba. That's in their language. That would have been a way to say Abba. And it does mean like a tender, loving sort of Papa kind of term. It's a, it's a close, heartfelt sort of Papa term. Greeks would have probably said the word that we translate as Father. But I bring this up because I don't normally go around, and even my kids... 317 times a day they're never like daddy father they don't go around daddy father papa father papa father you know they just say daddy so why would the bible have abba father why would it have daddy father or papa father why would that both be in there well i think it's because in christ two different faiths two different cultures jews gentiles people who wouldn't have normally ever sought god together find themselves together through the gospel. And I think Paul brings the two words together and makes one word out of two to send a message that through Christ, Jew, Gentile, whoever you are, everybody's become a beloved 
son. Everybody's become a beloved daughter. Everybody's got the privilege and the intimacy and the honor of just going to God and saying, Abba, Father. And it's a picture that whoever it is, whatever they're going through, wherever they're coming from, however they think about God, whatever words they used to use, Christ has made two families into one. And now everybody says, Abba, Father. Everybody's talking to the same God. So if the Jews and the Gentiles who didn't start out praying with the same way or the same words or the same ideas about God, if the gospel can bring both of them together, let's keep our unity strong as a church. Let's remember that all of us are coming into Jesus, our chief shepherd, and he's leading us and he's saying, you're my son, I love you, you're privileged, you're beloved, you're my daughter, I've got intimacy with you, fearless intimacy with you, with me is yours Let's deepen our unity. Satan would love for there to be seeds of division and all of the rest of that. And it'd be easy in one sense because you've got people crying out with fear, people crying out with impatience, people ready to go, people ready to wait, unresolved conflict, all that stuff that they say happens to churches at moments. But we can deepen our unity and say Jesus is bringing us all together. We're all calling him Abba Father, wherever we're coming from. Even if it's different reasons, The different reasons why we might say Abba, Father, are nothing compared to the cultural distinctions and spiritual differences and everything else between Jews and Gentiles. And they all say Abba, Father, because God's big enough to hear all of our prayers, whatever they are, whatever goes before them, whatever comes after them, whatever happened five years ago, whatever happens 10 years from now, God's saying, I'm listening. I hear the Abba, Father. I hear the Abba, Father. Because he's your Abba, he's your father, he's my Abba, he's your father, he's your Abba, he's my father, and on and on and on. We've got this Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father all over the room. He cares about all of us. He's listening when you're angry. He's listening when you're afraid. He's listening when you're anxious. He's listening when you're afraid. When something hasn't resolved yet, and yet has been 12 years of time, he's listening. When something hasn't resolved yet, and it's been like 12 minutes, he's listening. He's up there saying, go ahead, hit me with all the daddies you got. Hit me with all the Abba Fathers you got. Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father. He wants to hear them all. Abba Father, Abba Father, Abba Father. He wants to hear them all. Our unity isn't in what we agree about or even the experiences that we share in or the skills of our conflict reconciliation as valuable as all that could be. Our unity is in our Abba Father. Our unity is in we're all talking to the same God. Our unity is in that deep in our hearts when something we're longing for, we're wanting for, our feelings are all stirred up, there's a God up there who's listening. That's our unity. That's what's bringing us together. Our unity stands upon the God who hears us no matter what we say. I said earlier that there's three natural experiences for a church. Anxiety or fear, unresolved stuff, and complaining and all these other kind of things. But here's the beauty. In all of that, there's two incredible gifts of our chief shepherd. He says, you can talk to God just like he does. Abba, Father. It's Jesus who was modeling that. It's Jesus who was getting that started. Fearless intimacy with God is ours because Jesus has made a way into that. And number two, the beautiful thing is that as we talk to God, he'll talk back to us. In Job 38, that book's nearing the end. You probably know the story. In short, it's easy to summarize Job is a good guy living a normal life for his time and place, and everything falls apart. Everything he, everyone he loved, most everything he had gets destroyed, is lost, is shattered. 
His life is shattered, and there's 37 chapters you can read through, and, and he's up and down, and he's the roller coaster. And, you know, talk about somebody who's not gritting his teeth, like he's pouring it all out, and it ends up report, recorded in the pages of Scripture. He's poured it all out for 37 chapters. And in chapter 38, all of that confusion, all of that pain, all of that loss, all those memories in Job's life that he's been talking about begin to come into clarity because God starts talking. Because I want to answer, I want to ask you honestly, do you believe that God answers you? I'm not asking you like a theological Bible kind of question, like a doctrine question, an intellectual. I'm not saying, do you believe that God answers prayer? I'm saying, do you believe that God answers you? Because I think that some of us, I mean, I like the idea. I believe I would say God answers prayer. Yes. But I think the reason that God answers prayer is because God answers you. It's because when people say Abba Father, he's actually real and he's actually listening and he actually loves us. God doesn't answer prayer. Prayer is grammatically, I should know this better. I think prayer grammatically is a direct object. It's a thing. Anyways, my point, I'll just leave it at that. Prayer is a thing. It's an object. It's a, it's a term we use to mean conversation with the creator. But God doesn't answer prayer, this object, this grammatical construction, this kind of stuff. He answers people. He answers people who talk to him. Prayer is just a thing. And this isn't chat GPT. This isn't artificial intelligence. This isn't like on my phone, what's the maximum length of a striped bass? And the answer pops up because I have Siri, and that's what Siri does, is figure this stuff out and go find the answer and just give it to me. This isn't that. This is fearless intimacy with God who's listening, not just supplying information, not just sort of theoretically listening to us. This is the time when we can say, Abba, Father, and maybe say it a lot and say it for all kinds of reasons. And I wanted you to know that if you have the time and the personality and the kind of life where you can have deep, long, focused, in your prayer closet, door closed, lights down kind of prayer moments, fantastic. But for the other people in this room or for the other moments of your life, you can also just go, Abba, Father. And you can feel that flood of emotion and go, Abba, Father. You can feel that rush of questions or that stuff, whatever it is, or thoughts forward, whatever, and just say, Abba, Father. You can be asked for the 289th time some question, Abba, Father. Maybe you just say that to yourself as the thoughts goes on, because the scriptures also say that the Spirit knows what you need before you even ask Him. So He doesn't need lots of help from you to get the words right. He just says, Hey, I'm listening. I love you. I care about you. As we begin our next chapter as a church, whatever it turns out to be, wherever it goes, the hope of our hearts is this. Fearless intimacy with God is ours. We can say, Abba, Father. He loves us. He talks to us. He's got truth and grace. And Job had a long time, right? 37 chapters, lots of, you know, stuff. But God spoke. God was listening. God was paying attention. God was working. And we can count on him to tell us what we need to hear. We can count on him to lovingly affirm us, to lovingly challenge us. That's why there's no fear. We're loved. We're his. Through the spirit, through the gospel, he's become our Abba Father. I want to close with a quote from Corey Ten Boom. You might have heard of her. She was a Christ follower during World War II. She and her family 
were eventually living in an occupied country uh, that had been temporarily at least controlled by the Germans, taken over by the Germans, and her and her family made a difficult decision as Christ followers that they were going to try to save as many of the Jewish people as they could by hiding them in their home and hiding them in other places, and they created this kind of underground secret you know, system for as long as they could keep it. And during all of that time, even though seemingly her life would have been controlled by the German military and the power that they had and the control that they had and the might of their military and their dominant cultural force on her life at the time, she took an amazing perspective and she said, I'm going to trust God in this season. And she said these exact words, and I close with this. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. Let's pray. Father, we're ready to sit still and trust the engineer because you are our Abba Father. And some of us are still going to squirm in our seat once in a while. And some of us are still going to notice it's pretty dark outside or this tunnel's a little longer than we thought. <laughs> or we didn't know the tunnel was coming or we don't know when the tunnel's over. Or we'll wonder, are there turns in the tunnel? Or do you slow down? And some of us will have some thoughts. We'll squirm in our seats. But I want to pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ for our unity. That we'd remember that what helps us most is saying, Abba, Father. And some of us are, are, are thinking some things and going through some things that just as people, just ourselves, we need to just kind of say, Abba, Father, about some of these things. And others of us will go through experiences that are a little more related to all of us at the same time. And I pray that whatever it is this week, we could be able to say, Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Abba, Father. And for a lot of us, myself included, it's going to require paying attention to feelings. It's going to require to make in some room for prayer. It's going to require a little bit of extra effort or a little bit of new steps taken or something like that. And I pray that you'd walk us through that, Holy Spirit, because we do need to be taught. We're not that different than the early disciples who came to Christ and said, teach us how to pray. And it may be that some of us need to be taught how to pray. But what gives us hope and what gives us unity and what gives us ultimately joy and a future and a faith is that you, our chief shepherd, have led us into this place of fearless intimacy. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to hide. And we don't. We choose not to. We're choosing not to hide, not to be afraid. Or if we have, we'll step out a little bit. We'll step out of that a little bit, and we'll just say, Abba, Father, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.